Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. At this point, I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, as well as Genesis chapter 4. Uh, So 1 John chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. Uh, We're continuing in our series where we're looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The title of the series is What Sort of Story Is This? Where we, we look at the stories that were told at the beginning of the Bible and we ask, what kind of story are they telling about who we are and how does that reflect into how we see ourselves today? Uh, Last week, we looked at the story of Genesis chapter 3, where it finishes with God clothing Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had these uh, fig leaf clothing, and God gives them animal skins, preparing them for the, the conditions that they were entering into outside of Eden. And now... We're continuing that with the Cain and Abel. Uh, The title for today is Sin Makes Us Restless Wanderers. And you will see that restless wandering come up in our passage a couple of times. We're starting with the reading from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates A fellow believer is a murderer, and you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Genesis chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, and some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, there's a movie that I recently watched called Catch Me If You Can. Uh, the video looked like this, I guess, when it first came out in 2002. I might have watched it on VHS, hopefully DVD by that point. Uh, it starred Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, and it was about a, a sex successful con artist. Uh, this person impersonated an airline pilot, a doctor, and a lawyer along the way. And in the process, he makes millions of dollars. He goes to the most exotic of places, to different uh, beaches and luxurious hotels. He's, he's basically living the dream. He's, he seems invincible in this story. Now, there's a, a memorable scene in here where the agent who's trying to track him down is working in his office on Christmas Eve, and the, the con artist calls him up. And he seemingly does so just to taunt him. But with him on the phone, the, the agent figures he'll, he'll just come out with it and say, hey, if, if you want to talk to me, why don't we just meet face to face? And to his surprise, he gets this reply. I'm at my suite in the Stuvescent Arms, room 3113. In the morning, I leave for Vegas in the weekend. For the weekend. Uh, the, the agent, he, he almost jumps on it. He, he wants to use this, but he thinks twice, saying, you think you're going to get me at this again? You're not going to Vegas. You're not in the Stuvescent Arms. You'd love for me to take 20 of the agents on Christmas Eve and barge into your hotel and make, make fools of ourselves. And then the scene, uh, after the conversation ends, that it kind of pans out and reveals that this person was, in fact, in room 3113. That scene was so powerful because it revealed something, that all of these things that the person was striving for, that living of the dream, ended up being hollow and empty for him. He had become tired of being a restless wanderer. The, 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 the con artist in here 
almost plays out a bit of the story of Cain, a modern-day Cain living out the exile out of the result of the things that he was doing. Uh, this, this story, both in Catch Me If You Can and in the story that we looked at, we get an image of the results of sin. That sin leads to separation. Sin leads to exile. It's this fragmentation of the person into tiny little different pieces and it scatters them out and makes them feel like you cannot be at home. Uh, Often we look at sin just in uh, these categories of things that we should do or should not do. Uh, We define them by the rules, but we can also learn a lot by looking at the results of sin or its effects. You do not need to be constantly on the run to identify with either of these characters, either Cain or the con artist. We know what it feels like to not be at home. We're not surprised either at the end when he sees himself kind of voluntarily giving himself up in that phone call, wanting to settle down. Something about that just, just makes sense. Now, by the fourth chapter of Genesis, we are also seeing a pattern emerge. Uh, we, we start off with the Garden of Eden, and that is the home where God places Adam and Eve, and when they sin, God removes them from, them, from that home, and they have a sense of, of homelessness, and God equips them into that new place. Now, again, we have Cain, and Cain entering into sin, and God removing him from that place and sending him into wandering, sending him from exile from the place that he was in. God finishes his pronouncement to Cain with these familiar words. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Um, Cain recognizes the gravity of this he knows that, God's, that life is rooted in God's presence, and he responds with these words. Today, you will be driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Key to Cain is the presence of God here. He knows that being barred from God's presence will mean death for him, Uh, And the result of sin is clear. Uh, Sin will make him a restless wanderer. He will always be longing for a home. He will always be longing for that land that he has been exiled from. Uh, The separation for Cain doesn't only begin with the murder. There's an internal struggle that he goes through first. When God favors Abel's sacrifice, look how Cain responds here. Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Uh, the, The Hebrew image here for very angry that I have in yellow there is that his anger became hot. Uh, he is burning with anger here. Oh, that is 
getting ahead there. Uh, he's burning with anger. Sep- separation that is found in, in envy sneaks into Cain's heart. He, he's experiencing the jealousy and the hatred for not getting what he thought belonged to him. This pushes his brother away from him already. There's already separation functioning within him. And I think we, we can identify with this story as well. There, there's something about this story that just makes sense. Because we've felt separation ourselves that can grow within us, how it lurks within ourselves and expresses itself in painful ways, whether with others or the ways that we respond to God. This is a story about the twisting of the human heart, the movement from, from anger and envy to destruction and separation. It's a story about the restless wandering that results from sin. But that's not all that this story is about. There, there's much more to it. Uh, today's story finishes much the same way that last story finished. It finishes with grace. Uh, We do well in remembering that each story in the first 11 chapters here is centered in, not on these characters of of Cain and Abel or Adam and Eve, but it's, it's about God. God is the one that forwards the actions throughout the story. We see God continued to be the main character, carrying the plot forward, God graciously intervening at the end. Now, I want to focus on this image of God's grace that is captured in this story, and we're going to focus in on three different points. The first point being here, that God permits and equips the wandering. And we'll look first in there, at how God permits the wandering. So in verse 12, Cain is given this pronouncement from God, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield any crops from you, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This might sound like a bit of a harsh pronouncement from God, uh, but we have to remember the, the context in this society. So this is in the ancient Near East, and in this time, uh, both for Israel, who's hearing this story, and the surrounding places, a common law was an eye for an eye and a, and a tooth for a tooth. And that is a law or, or a saying surrounding a law that's supposed to stop any escalation of violence. So that, that understanding, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, recognizes that that's not what the human heart wants to do. The human heart, when an eye is harmed, it wants to go and do the same for both of the other person's eyes, and it gives limits on how you respond. Now, everyone that sees the story knows what the limit is and what the expected response would be. Murder is responded with death. By the law of the land, the people hearing the story would have understood Cain has just given himself a death sentence. By any account, a family member had the right to seek him out and take his life for what he had done. So when God comes and seeks him out here, it's very important to note what God does. God permits him to live. He withholds the justice that would be assumed at that time. 
Uh, this is revealing something about the character of the God that we worship. God does not just smite us down when we err. God does not immediately bring the judgment we deserve. We are given space to continue to be able to respond in the world, to respond to God's grace. In contrast to Cain's anger that glows hot in the story, we have a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love for Cain, and we can remember that that abounding of love is also for us. The second part here is that it doesn't just permit the wandering, but it equips us into our wandering. And that looks into verse 15 here. When Cain fears that he'll be killed in the midst of his wandering, that someone else will carry forward the justice that their society calls for, God gives this protective word. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. People hearing this story would be tracking along with this. They, they would see that by verse 11, Cain is essentially a dead man. Yet God, in giving a protective mark in verse 15, is bringing this dead man back to life. Uh, Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann intentionally brings in the language of resurrection here. He says that this isn't resurrection happening in the story, but it's pointing towards it. It's giving an anticipation of it. It's foreshadowing it. The one with a death sentence, as good as dead, is given life and protection. God has not lost interest in the murderer, nor has he given up on him. It reminds us a little bit of that first John chapter 3 passage that we started off with. It's a God that does not give up on us. It's a God that first shows love to us. And we can also notice, again, this, this pattern that we're seeing from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Cain's actions demand a new circumstance. So much like in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve's sin have them kicked out of the garden, and then God provides for them for life outside the garden with their new garments. We have in Genesis 4, Cain living in the results of his sin, being sent out from where he is into wandering, but God again provides grace for him. God provides this mark on which he will not be killed. And I think this is something that we need to be able to sit with. We are also people who are permitted to wander. We are not taken out of the sense of, of homelessness that we might have. We are still in our struggle against sin and evil. Uh, we just saw that in the baptism right before this. This response that the parents had in, in rejecting sin and evil. It names these as current and present things that, that we need to be resisting. And we also know that we do not resist them perfectly. That sin runs straight through our hearts and to some extent that we are wanderers. But we are equipped well beyond what Cain receives here. 
We, we bear the mark of one who is in Christ. And this transforms our wandering. And that leaves us to point number two here, where Jesus transforms us from wanderers to pilgrims. The Christian tradition often uses uh, the image of a pilgrim to describe what our situation is. Uh, And there's a difference between a wanderer and a pilgrim. A wanderer is one who is just aimlessly going on with, with no destination. They are aimless and they are restless. A pilgrim, on the other hand, is one that goes on a journey to encounter something holy, something sacred that will transform themselves. A pilgrim is a person on a journey catching glimpses of their true home along the way. And so we have this picture of what it looks like for us. God does not immediately remove us from our struggles regardless of their cause, whether this is the pandemic, whether this is mental health challenges or physical illness, the relational problems that we have with our family or with our friends, these things remain with us. With the presence of these things causing separation, we know that we will never feel perfectly at home in this world. Not until we have this renewal of creation, not until the day where God will make all things new. It's that that image that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 22. Right now, we're in this in-between time. We are pilgrims with the hope that comes from being people who have God revealed to us in Jesus, the one who promises for a day that in him we find our rest. Uh, The title that we had um, in the weekly announcements and that we opened with was that sin makes us restless wanderers. That could be the first half of the title. I didn't want the title to be too long, uh, but I feel like it needs the second half to it. Sin makes us restless wanderers, but Jesus makes us grace-filled pilgrims. It's Jesus who does this. As always, it is God's work towards us first, and this is made clear in 1 John chapter 3, where it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. As you can see, John says these words in the context here of the story of Cain. God gives us a reminder, our understanding of love and redemption comes from God's actions towards us, which is good news because we we share in Cain's fate. We too have passed into death through our sin, but then are loved into life through God, and we are called into living that love for one another. We are reminded here that Jesus laid down his life for us. And this is something that Jesus does, not just simply us in our best moments, but for the places where we are at our worst. It is the greatest and ultimate response of God's grace. 
It is the ultimate clothing. It is the ultimate mark of protection. Everything before Jesus is just foreshadowing what is to come, the goodness that Jesus will bring. Jesus' salvation does not take us out of our wandering, though. It moves us from wanderers to pilgrims. It moves us from people who are simply aimless and separated to people with a holy destination. I'm wondering for yourselves if this is something that we can be considering. What does it feel more like for you? Do you feel more like wanderers or more like a pilgrim? Lastly, pilgrims leave signposts along the way. Jesus calls, Jesus' salvation calls us to be a people of love, and as pilgrims, we are not just called to a holy destination, but we leave these signposts along the way, and this is found in, or in 1 John 3, 16, where it says, Jesus Christ had laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We imitate the true image bearer in our love. This forces us to perhaps examine what we have in common with Cain. Cain does the opposite here. He sacrifices his brother to try escape hatred. A line that captures Cain's selfishness in the story is, am I my brother's keeper? It's a haunting line. Am I my brother's keeper? It captures the human resistance to sin so well. It's a claim of innocence in the failure to protect and to love. It's a claim of independence. What, does my, what my brother does is none of my business. Am I my brother's keeper? Could be the excuse for subtle and dormant racism that goes on unchecked. Am I my brother's keeper could be the slogan for consumerism. Do we really care about how the product came to us or are we just seeking the best deal to suit our wallets the best? It can be behind the abandonment of friends and family. I am not my brother's keeper. They'll be fine on their own. I don't need to forgive. Am I my brother's keeper informs our response to COVID restrictions. Am I my brother's keeper is responded to in many different ways throughout Scripture. We find this in the Old Testament laws where God, God's people were meant to look out for, for the people, the, the foreigner, for the poor, for the weak. We see this in perhaps most succinctly in Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan, where, where the hero of the story is the one that owns up to the responsibility that, he, that they have for their fellow human being. And this is in contrast to the calloused religious elite who walk on by. Recognizing that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper has pretty deep implications. We, we are not meant to live isolated lives. Like it or not, we are tethered to community. Our families and our homes, the people that raised us, and the people that we raise. We are tethered in both our successes 
and our failures. We are bound to one another in a way that signals that we are committed to growth and love and support. And again, this is one of the beautiful things that we got to witness this morning in baptism. We made a commitment earlier to be keepers. We will keep Denver in our prayers. We will serve him as he grows in programs like cadets and youth and, of course, in the care that just comes from being present in this community. I think a great example of being your brother's keeper comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. This is a book about the divide between heaven and hell. And he gives this amazing image of the depth of beauty that can be found in heaven and his reflections on it. Uh, There's a person that the main character is, is a pilgrim of sorts who is visiting heaven, and he is being guided. Uh, As he's observing the surroundings, a a person comes near the path that he is by, and there's a a whole parade of people that's surrounding her. He assumes that this is someone that must have been very important. He'd probably know the name. Maybe it was a very popular queen or a household name of sorts, a, a, a famous saint. But the guide assures her this was nobody important, a person who on earth went by the name of Sarah Smith and lived in a small village. But this does not prevent her from being one of the great ones, because in Lewis's imagination, heaven's greatness is not measured in the same way as it is on earth. Uh, It struck me as particularly uh, appropriate for Mother's Day, as it calls each person around her her children, and that the dialogue that happens in the book goes like this. Who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on our own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. The the story goes on. This happens in all different sorts of situations, but he explains it in the bottom here. In her, they became themselves. And now abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. This is what it can look like to take seriously that we are keepers of our fellow brothers and sisters. A love that points towards heaven, that that gives signposts along the way of what renewed creation can look like. We are given opportunities to live into this form of motherhood in our day-to-day. A special form of love that does not steal others, but brings them into their true selves. 
allowing them to love more freely in response. This is the love of one who has basked in the love of Jesus and has that overflow from them. This is a type of love that is opposite of Cain's life-ending separation and wandering. It brings people home wherever they are. It sends people back to their homes more fully themselves. This is what we are called into in our Christian walk. I want to leave us then with three questions, and you can discuss these at home. You can discuss these throughout the week uh, with people you're talking to. The first is a question that came from earlier on. Do you feel more like a wanderer or a pilgrim? Second, what ways do we fail to be our brother's keeper? In what ways do we share with Cain? And lastly, in response to that, are there ways you are being called to be a mother, father, brother, or sister for those in your community? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories that reveal more and more of who you are, that you are a God of grace who does not abandon us. When we are sent wandering, you equip us for what's ahead, and ultimately, you have equipped us through what you have done through Jesus. May we be people clothed with him who bear the mark of being sealed by the Spirit and that this transforms us from mere wanderers to pilgrims, giving people opportunities for others to be their truest selves and giving a snapshot of the home that we are created for. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.